Welcome to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations, a podcast featuring members of the St. Mark's Cathedral community in Seattle, Washington. These interviews feature lives of faith and adventure, service and connection. Here's our host, Michael Pereira. This is the first interview I'm recording since the announcement of the podcast went live. Uh, So now that we have all these new listeners, uh, there's absolutely no pressure on me or Christy Chapman to make this good. (laughs) Christy, thank you so much for joining us today for Cathedral Conversations. Oh, and thank you too, Michael, for the invitation to talk and to visit. It's my pleasure. Just to start, um, let's keep it simple. Let's turn the clock all the way back. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're not a Seattle native, I don't think. So tell us how Seattle came up on your radar. Just a big picture view of how that led to St. Mark's. Okay, so the big so the big picture view. How did I get to Seattle? So believe it or not, um, when I was a very very small child, like when I was in kindergarten or first grade, young child, I had this dream of wanting to be in Seattle. So I grew up in Texas. I grew up west of San Antonio in the Texas Hill Country, which is this beautiful part of Texas very small part um, in a very small town but for some reason deep within me there was this longing to come to the Pacific Northwest that I cannot explain other than perhaps movement of the spirit I don't know Um, and so as a young child I always longed to come here my family never visited when I was at home growing up no part of our family had spent any time in the Pacific Northwest but somehow I had this deep longing of wanting to come here and my grandmother, my dad's mother, apparently thought it, it, that I was serious enough about wanting to come here that she actually, for one of my birthday presents, got me this apple box, like when apples used to be delivered in boxes. boxes. <laughs> yes, and so the apple box actually has a picture of Mount Rainier, and it's from one of the apple companies that's in Wenatchee. Oh, and so that box has traveled with me all across the country and so in some ways it was the precursor and kind of the preview of what was to come so deep deep in my bones there has been this longing to be here and so we have been in Seattle now for over 20 years which is hard for me to believe because that's now almost half of my life that we have been here. So somehow the spirit did in fact know what the spirit was doing and we ended up here. Um, So a couple of things, how did I end up at St. Mark's but then also what brought us to Seattle? So there was that longing Um, But then there are the practical aspects of that. So my husband was working on a PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Tulsa a long time ago, over 20 years ago. And one of the things that people who do PhDs in clinical psychology are required to do is a residency or an internship. And so he, um, when we were talking about where he wanted to do residencies, we talked about the University of Washington as being one of the places that maybe he could do a residency. So we interviewed and lo and behold, they accepted him. And so that's actually how we moved to Seattle was for him to actually finish his PhD and then to do his residency at the UW. So we moved and Seattle was what we hoped it was. <laughs> we somehow got adjusted to the cloudiness and to the dark oh, and dreary, wow. dreary, yeah. dreary, dreary days. But I think as a Texan where you know we grew up in the <laughs> desert, it was actually just this great delight to be here. So, so that's how we got to Seattle. Um, how did I find my way to St. Mark's? Well, um, well, I think part of it is through voc- vocational calling. Um, so this sense of um, 
when I went off to seminary, I had this deep hope in many ways that when I graduated from seminary and when it was time to figure out where I would first serve my first um, call to ministry, I had this deep hope that I would be able to serve at St. Mark's. And, um, and so as my seminary time came to a close, as it does for everybody, Steve reached out to me, Dean Steve reached out to me about six months before I graduated and asked if I would be interested in coming and serving the people of St. Mark's as a curate. And, um, and, and I, in some ways, was just absolutely shocked that I, we were having that conversation because it's what I had hoped for so long as I was going through seminary and really kind of discerning what ministry looked like as an ordained person, really hoping that it would be at St. Mark's. And then when he reached out and said, hey, let's have a conversation about that, it was in many ways this hope come true. And so that's what brought me to St. Mark's. I had not really worshipped at all in this space as... Um, as an adult coming back to the church, um, my sending parish is in Magnolia, a, another Episcopal church, and so I'd had some connection with St. Mark's through EFM and um, helping to support and to sponsor people for confirmation, but that was it. That was really my only connection to the cathedral until I got to come and serve here, and it has been just a great delight to be able to be in this community for the last two plus years. It sounds like two dreams come true. I mean, you had this spark about yeah. Seattle. Yeah. Beyond any explanation. Yes. And even then, once you finish with seminary, you have a parish which you call home. Mm -hmm. But then to get the call to come here, that's that's a lot of things lining up. Yeah. A lot of big things lining up. Yeah. How did the Episcopal journey start for you? So that's a good question. So, um... So I consider myself to be a preschool Episcopalian. So some people will say that they are cradle Episcopalians, which means that they were Episcopalians while they were still in utero. Um, I actually remember the day that my mother dropped me off at an Episcopal church. So the church that I grew up in, in this small town in the Texas Hill Country, was actually big enough to have a school associated with it, a very small school, essentially preschool and kindergarten. And so I went to an Episcopal preschool and then Episcopal kindergarten. And I so clearly remember, even now, I remember that day that mom dropped me off at school. There were only four of us in my teeny tiny little class. Um, but it was the first time that I had, that she had left me anywhere that I, that I have this conscious memory of. And so in some ways I was like, what are you doing to me? And then within a very, very short period of time, it was just this great, great joy to be able to go every day to school. And so I spent much of my very early childhood in, an, in a church, in an, in an Episcopal church. Then my mother was also very actively involved in leadership, so she was on the vestry and she was involved. Wow. She was a church rat in many ways and all kinds of different ways. So I spent a lot of time, even when I was not in school, just wandering around the grounds of this church and playing in the office and um, maybe the staff was tolerating me. I have no <laughs> idea in retrospect. But it felt very much like home to me, and that space felt very much at home. And so I started going to church all the time, in part because of school, but then also because I felt like that that was part of our home and such an important part of my life growing up as a young person. So um, so that's what brought me initially to the church. Um, I went to Catholic school in this tiny town, which apparently was large enough to have a Catholic elementary school. Um, and that's where I started to learn about the distinctiveness of our Anglican way and, right. um, and to a certain extent what it meant to be an Episcopalian and an Anglican in the midst of a 
kind of a multi-faith community. Um, and then as a high schooler, I had de- dear close friends who were um, other Christian traditions. And so I got to learn a little bit about how my tradition, our tradition as Episcopalians, is similar and different to other um, Christian traditions. And so I feel like that, you know, as a child and as a teenager, I spent a lot of time really kind of sorting out what is it to be this interesting, unique way of being the Jesus movement. Um, and then talking with people about that as, as part of my growing up. So it was kind of intricately in, intertwined in my, in my upbringing, I guess. So. I was going to say, that's not a usual question that teenagers ponder. No. But given how <laughs> close, how you grew up in the church, yeah. having all these questions about what is it, I mean, certainly what it means to be Christian, but what it means to be an Episcopalian in the company of Catholics, of Methodists, of Baptists, non-denominational yeah, Christians. Yeah. Yeah. That's a kind of a unique perspective yeah. for a young person to have. Yeah. So how did how did you know then that the, the Episcopal way was the one that spoke the best to you? So that's a good question. So as a, you know, as an, I guess as a child, this is not the greatest answer, but in certain, in some ways, it, it was the way because it was the way that my parents practiced and prayed. Mm-hmm. And so I knew in many ways no other ways. Although when I would go to church with other kids in other denominations, I kind of had this sense. I actually, I remember distinctively going, when we went off to college and we all went our separate ways, all of my friends, I went to see one of my friends who was um, attending um, Baylor University and she was going to a Baptist church. And so it was one of the rare times when I actually went to a Sunday morning service that was a Baptist service. And they spend lots of time essentially doing the liturgy of the word. So, you know, lots of reading and lots of reflecting and lots of preaching. And so we get to the end of all of that, which is about an hour, or what I recall, it was about an hour. And I was like, great, it's time for the service to start now, (laughs) which was for me the time when I, in this tradition that we know, we, you know, have the peace and then we have Eucharist. Yeah. They ended the service and everybody went home and I'm like, wait a minute, right. I feel ripped off. And then in some ways that was more confirmation about this this way that we pray together in this particular tradition and how meaningful it is for me and was then and really is now for us to have this beautiful liturgy of the word and then the liturgy of the table and how those two things are so intricately interwoven. And so that was a confirmation for me as a, as a young person, meaning a 20s, in my early 20s. And then, like many people in their early 20s, eventually I wandered away for some period of time so I could find myself and find what faith really was um, as an adult, separate from my family and my Mm -hmm. upbringing. And when I came back to the church in my late 20s, I knew that I wanted to start in the Episcopal Church, and as soon as I went, the first Sunday that I was back, I knew this is it. This is what feels so incredibly comfortable. And, um, And for me, the right way of experiencing how God speaks to me through this work and through these people and through these prayers that have been prayed for so long. So, so I feel like I've had a couple of different opportunities to, yeah. to, try, try, to try this on and to say, yeah, this, this is what makes sense. And it me. all comes back to where you feel at home, where you feel yeah. the most called. Yes, exactly. That's right. Where did the call to clergyhood come from? So, I, I, there are two distinct times in my life when I remember hearing that call. Um, what I will say about both of those times is that it has 
both of those times it has been through other people. It has always come through other people. Um, and in some ways kind of maybe reflecting back what they see in terms of my own ministry and engagement within a community. So the first time was when I was in high school and when I was still very actively involved in that church that I grew up in at St. Peter's. And as I was getting ready to graduate from high school, one of the principals of the high school asked, like, oh, are you thinking about going into the into the ministry and into the priesthood? And I thought she was absolutely crazy. And I'm like, no, I'm not thinking about that. And so I was startled about her observation and about the question. So then fast forward um, another, oh gosh, roughly 20 years um, to my time into my ministry at Church of the Ascension, which is my sending parish. So I was actively, once I finally got involved, had enough courage to step foot into that church. It did not take long for me to get actively involved (laughs) in that parish. And so um, I found myself on a vestry as the junior warden of this vestry in a very critical time in the life of that parish and started spending just an enormous amount of time in that place as an act of love and as an act of ministry. And I didn't even realize what I was doing in the sense of like being there all of the time and just really kind of pouring so much of myself into this ministry. Um, And my daughter's godfather, so one of the godparents of our daughter, Um, came up to me one day, and I still remember this like it was yesterday, came up to me, we were outside, and we were actually at a funeral, and he, we were having conversation after all of the services were, after the service was over, and after, um, and after the committal had happened, and he said, he looked me in the eye, and he said, are you thinking about going to seminary, and are you thinking about ordained ministry, and this was a person who I just have enormous respect for, deep, deep respect, and he's spiritually, one of the the deep tap roots for me and when he looked at me and said that I was like oh my gosh I I had that same reaction that I had when I was a kid which is are you absolutely crazy and then it was like oh what is happening something is going on that I do not understand at this point and that I cannot control and now I have to start paying deeper and deeper attention so Peter said something, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, somebody else said something. It was oh, almost wow. like the dam broke. And at that point, I started hearing it from so many people who I knew very, very closely in that community. And from others who were not associated with that church or with any church in Seattle, even with the Diocese of Olympia. And I thought, oh, I need <laughs> to pay attention to this. And and from there it went. And the other thing I will say about that is when I finally got enough courage to talk to my husband, to talk to Chris about it, um, I said, you know, I think something might be going on, and um, I have this sense that there's some deep call to ministry, to ordain ministry. And Chris looked at me with these great tender and worried eyes, but ultimately with the tender eyes of a spouse, and said to me, you know, I knew this was going to happen. And when he said it, and the way in which he said it, I, was, I knew then that there was something pretty strong wow. percolating. So, yeah. Do you think there was a sense of inevitability to it? Or maybe maybe not inevitability, but just a natural progression into this calling in this place? So I really like the way that you talk about and the way that you have phrased this as a natural progression. Um, I like to think about it that way, actually, very, very much so. I the When I was in seminary, one of the communities that I ended up serving and where I did all of my diaconal work when I was in seminary... Um, 
one of the first Sundays that I served as a deacon in that community, one of the choir members there came up to me and she said, oh, I hope you like the ministry better than what you were doing before. And she didn't know a lot about my life and my vocation, what I considered to be my vocation before going to seminary. And I was, I kind of, I, the, the comment rubbed me the wrong way, but I tried to figure out how to respond with a little bit of grace or at least some measure of grace. What I did say to her was, all of the work that I have done, all of my vocation, so my time, my, my 20 years as an accountant and as a CPA, and now my time in ministry, they actually all are a part of what it means to be called in many ways. And I feel like that the work that I did before I went to seminary for a long, long period of time was actually critical in terms of my formation as a priest and my formation and continuing formation as a Christian, that I actually needed that, that those 20 years working, you know, in finance and nonprofit accounting, I needed that. And that's a huge part of now what is being revealed in ministry and what this call is about right now in part. So, yeah. That's something that's always fascinated me, especially when I talk to clergy here or in other contexts, is the big why. Because given what you were doing in your church you were already so involved and then you had your life outside that church but to accept this calling such a wholesale change to your life in many ways there must have been some sleepless nights for you as you were putting this together sleepless nights in the sense of oh my gosh, what are we doing? And <laughs> there were a couple of times in seminary when I felt like in many ways God was coming back to us to say, okay, you have said yes, and this is what this is about. Yeah. And, you know, you can say no if you want to, but I, but, but I, God, I'm speaking for God here. Um, there is always this opportunity to discern right now if this is in fact how you're feeling, you know, called, and are you, are you still feeling committed to this? Um, but I, I think part of the sleepless nights, too, for me, especially as I got ready to leave um, the University of Washington, I worked at the U for almost 15 years, I think part of the sleepless nights there was around um, around grief, knowing that this, part, this first part of my life it, in many ways had come all of the way to its full fruition and it was time to start letting pieces of life, of that part of my life go. Which also meant then um, close friendships and um, working closely with colleagues who I had known there at the university for a long time. We weren't gonna see each other in the same ways that we had and our relationships were gonna change. And so there was grief associated with that. But also this curiosity about, well now what? Now what are those relationships gonna be like? Now we get to know each other in a, in a different way um, and friendship gets to form in a new way. And so, yeah, so and I still think a little bit about that. that there's still some of that loss that's there because I, you know, I miss a lot of those people and I miss the community that sponsored me for ordination too. There's grief, but there's also joy for that community and for those relationships as they, as they change and as we figure out how to interact with each other in new ways, so. What was your curacy like? Oh my gosh, curacy was, so it was amazing. Um, it was hard um, and it was, I think in many ways, what we ultimately hope discernment is also about. So, um, so let me start first with um, amazing. 
this there is so much amazing stuff that is going on in this place the spirit is so incredibly alive in st mark's i have not felt it as palpably in any other community that i have served in as i feel it and continue to feel it in this place so there is just this sense of wonder and and gratitude for being able to minister alongside the people of St. Mark's in this place, in this time of the life of this parish and of this cathedral community. Um, and so, it, you know, I had some sense that it was going to be this remarkable experience, and it was, and, and it was, and it is so much more than what I imagined that it could possibly be. Um, so that's one way of saying that it was amazing. Um, it was hard, especially at the beginning, because there is so much that happens in this place. <laughs> and I started, my, most people start curacy around July 1st, and I ended up starting in September, so on September 1st. And so I started right as the program year was really Ooh. launching launching and ramping up. So one of your first Sundays here would have been Ministry Fair Sunday. Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in fact, the very first Sunday I was here, I preached. Steve had asked if I would preach, which that sermon probably is a disaster. <laughs> I'm not going to go back and listen to it. Um, but I, So I started on a Friday, and I preached on a Sunday. And that actually is a really, really good um, metaphor for what this place is like. It's like once you're here, you just jump in with all, like you're, it's a full-body experience all of a sudden. Um but but it was also, so Mary Shahane, who served in this community for many years as the deacon, was also the deacon at Ascension um, when I was in that community. Mary said that of the cathedral community and serving the cathedral community, it's kind of like being strapped on the front of a rocket with no suit whatsoever. And as soon as you're strapped, the rocket launches and up you go and, and you're off and running. And it, and I remember the first time I heard her say that before I was here thinking, oh, that's an interesting way of describing St. Mark's. And now, two plus years into it, I'm like, that's a perfect way of explaining what it is like in this wow. place. So it just, there is so much stuff that happens. And so my first, it was hard that first, I think, really kind of first three months as I was just trying to get acclimated to what was going on and things were moving so fast. I felt like I was trying to catch a train, a bullet train that was already going at 200 miles an hour and I was only able to run at like three miles an hour. And eventually I finally was able to hop on that train and start to find my footing. Um, And so three um, program years in, I'm like, oh, this is what fall is like in this place, and this is how we adapt and adjust and um, and move forward in that place. Um, so, yeah, so that is, I think, how it was challenging. Um, and I, there's also, you know, the whole sense of there's a whole new community to get to know. I, st- I remember the first couple of times that I presided in this space, huge space to preside in as a, as a brand new presider it's like breathe and it will be okay but there was also this really interesting sense of looking out at the assembly and realizing that there were only a handful of people I knew and so being incredibly curious about what the stories were of so many people who were praying here and and this excitement and this wonder about being able to spend time getting to know people and you know we all do that and it takes a long time for all of us to get to know one another at this deeper level mm-hmm. but there was some there was some sense of curiosity and excitement um, and wonder about what everybody was thinking and and really getting to know um, over time um, what are the things that people care deeply about and what are those things that people hold on to that they want to be able to share with another person and 
Um, and the, those first couple of Sundays looking at it saying, I don't know, I don't know any of those stories yet, but I also want to know them and I need to be patient and recognize that over time that will happen. Um, so that was hard, but it was also this um, invitation to me to say, "This is, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. This is what call starts to feel like in action and really embodied in this place. Um, the other thing I will say is the, um, I guess it was about six months into my curacy, there was one Sunday when I was sitting along the wall at the 11 o'clock service, so I was serving bread, I guess, and sitting along that wall, and I looked out and I thought, oh my gosh, in just this short period of time, I have this sense of really starting to fall in love with this community and with the people of St. Mark's. And that's where I knew at that point, this is where I'm supposed to be serving. There's this deep sense of peace with that. But there was also this just little sense of grief too, saying, at some point I'll go. I don't know when I'll go, but when it's time to go, it's gonna be hard because I care so deeply about the people and the ministry of this place. And when I, when I had that sense that I knew this, this is really the place to be doing this early ministry. One of the things that I will say about early curacy too, especially my first year in curacy, is that Steve went on sabbatical when I, after I had been here for about nine, six months, I guess, six to seven months. Which is very unusual, I think, for curates to be in a place where the rector, or in this case, the dean, goes on sabbatical and does so so early on. Um, and so I feel like that kind of that first little bit of time while I was serving my curacy was also starting to get ready for what life would be like while he was on his sabbatical. Um, but what I will say about that time when he was on sabbatical is that for me personally, it became this incredible time of discernment. And so I really, really, I was able to function in some different, in some new ways in the cathedral community, yeah. in part because I'd been here a little bit longer and there was an expectation on all of us who remained um, that we would step into some new roles. But it also gave me an opportunity to really say, why do I feel like I'm, now that I've been in ministry, in ordained ministry for six months in this place, what do I feel like I'm being called to do more deeply in ministry? And that was a surprise to me. I did not expect um, to have that intense um, experience of discernment in that way during the sabbatical. And yet when Steve came back, I had this, this really clear sense about what it was that I felt like I wanted to do and my remaining time as curate and then thinking about what would come after curacy. And that in many ways is how this role that I'm in now, that was kind of, those were the, the, the beginning seeds of what that role is now. And so out of the sabbatical time came this sense of really, really leaning heavily into stewardship um, as a calling and a recognition that that has been the thread that has connected so much of my ministry for years and years and years and saying, hey, this is part of how you, Christy Chapman, are wired and there's a huge part of your ministry in that. Start walking and leaning into it and, and letting it flourish. So that came out of that time. Along with this idea of faith formation and what faith formation looks like in this place and then also more generally for the church at large. How do we start to imagine faith formation and spiritual growth in a faith community that longs for that, but also wants to try to do it in some new and some creative ways. And so those two things came out of Steve's sabbatical, and then in conversations with him, um, this recognition, I think, I hope on his part of saying, yeah, this, the, these seem like the ministries right now where we 
want and where we need to have some additional clergy support and here's a person who's willing to do it. So let's talk about how to make that happen so it continues on after curacy. That's a hell of a process to go through in your curacy. I mean, six months, give or take? Yeah, uh, but that's okay. And then you talked about how that prepped you for the role of being canon for spiritual growth and stewardship. Mm-hmm. What is spiritual growth and stewardship and what does it mean to be the canon for that? Yeah, so let's talk about um, what spiritual growth and stewardship is, or what they are, and then let's talk about canons. <laughs> so, um, so in some ways it's this amalgamation of two very distinct and different ministries. So spiritual growth, the way that we think about it, or at least the way that I think about it right now, is that it is like faith formation mm. in the sense of, you know, who is God and how do we understand ourselves in relation to God and how do we talk about that and reflect on that and be invited to pray and wonder about that as individuals and then also corporately, communally, together as a faith community. Um, So in some ways it's, I don't like thinking about this way, but I'm going to explain it this way right now. To a certain extent, it's about some of the classic traditional ways of doing formation. So, you know, we have this amazing set of programs through Children and Family Ministries, which is, to a certain extent, Sunday school, but then so much more about gathering together a community of children and a community of parents, and then how those two communities then relate to this larger community. Um, It's about how youth find and discover and wonder about their own faith and holding um, holding a structure, creating a structure and, and having language so that they can articulate what their faith is and also have it be deep enough so that when they go through their 20s and they wander off, they have enough of that seed planted into them that they can then lean back into it when they're ready to connect again. And then about adults, including parents and caregivers, um, about where we all are on our spiritual journeys, um, being able to name that, like where are we each on our spiritual journeys, and how do we find companionship with each other so that we can be able to explore and talk with each other about what's going on within our own lives, and then also be invited to go more deeply into what that exploration and that transformation is. I feel like that that is kind of at the heart of what spiritual growth and really kind of at the heart of formation is about. It's about being you know invited into some practice of Christian faith that says, oh, this is why I do this. This is what's this is what's going on within me that God is calling me to do. And here's how I try to do that faithfully for myself and within a faith community. And I also get to learn about that through others um, and what's going on within them and their own stories mm-hmm. then help inform my own story, which then helps inform the greater communal story about what we're doing together as Christians. You make it sound so easy. Well, I do, exactly. (laughs) And I'm going to have to have a transcript of that. that, Those words have not come out until just now. So you have helped helped us articulate this. Um, So that's part of how I see spiritual growth. I think one of the other things um, that Kelly and Nicole and I are talking a bunch about is This is Kelly Moody, Nicole Sylvanel. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So the two other um, staff members who are working and supporting um, faith formation, and I think Rebecca Gilmore and um, Michael Kleinschman are also a part of this conversation too, is, you know, 
in some faith communities, and maybe here historically, we think about faith formation as this very siloed set of ministries. So it's, you know, you have Sunday school, then you have youth group, then you have Bible study, then you have some other set of special programming that happens. And in this community, we also have music. A big part of this community is music. We are trying to be really intentional about breaking down those silos and saying, in fact, it's we're all on this continuum and everything is really integrated if we will let it be integrated and if we will find ways of being able to connect all of these things together, all of these programs together. Um, what gets me really excited about this work in this place right now is I think we have this huge opportunity to find ways of um, of looking at this continuum and being really creative about what faith formation is here. I don't know what any of that is right now. Mm. And at the same time, I think that there's this desire and this hunger and this opportunity for us to really find some creative ways of doing that. And what I will say is an example is Eat, Play, Love that happened right. in August was just I think it's the start of what that can look like in these really, really awesome ways of inviting, you know, it's not it's not vacation Bible school. It's not some kind of evening program for kids. It's about a cathedral-wide faith formation opportunity to come together, to be with each other, to pray, to learn, to study, to grow together. So, you know, that's where I get super excited is I think we've got a lot of opportunity for those kinds of, of those kinds of programs and those kinds of offerings in this place. What about stewardship? So stewardship. So I think in a lot of churches, I think even now in a lot of churches, when you say stewardship, people say, oh, no, that's all about money, and I'm running away quickly. Um, and to a certain extent, money is a, is a part of stewardship. I mean, that's a reality. And, um, and I, think we, I think we do a pretty good job of talking about that and saying, you know, money is a piece of stewardship. I think we can do more about that, and I think this fall we're going to try to do at least a little bit more, hopefully in a way that is um, palpable for people and in a way that invites them into that wondering and into those conversations themselves to do some of that reflective work themselves. Um, so that's a piece of stewardship. But I, I think we also know, and, and we as a, as a group of people, as a committee of people who are kind of this growing committee trying to figure out too, what do we t when we talk about stewardship and we say it's not just about money, what does that actually mean? Mm. Like the, so many people want to know and are saying stewardship is not about not just about money. So how do we put start to put that in practice in meaningful ways at St. Mark's? And there's already a lot of work that's being done. So I think about creation care and a lot of the work that Marjorie Ringness is kind of spearheading right now and some of the work that has been done historically in this place with Ruth Mulligan and with Earth Ministry and then also with this cathedral being a green cathedral, an enormous amount of energy around that and passion for that over the long life of this place. So how do we start to connect that work and say, this is also a part of what stewardship is about. How is our justice work and our mm -hmm. commitment to justice a piece of our stewardship? How is each one of us living into our own baptismal ministry a part of stewardship? And then collectively as a cathedral community, what does that look like? How is our, how is our ministry and our sets of ministries that happen here, how is that stewardship in this global kind of a way? Um, so there's a lot of work to be done around um, being able to articulate that, but then also wondering about what else we can be doing and what we're missing in that space as well. Um, 
I will say, and I wrestle some with this. Steve and I have lots of conversations about, you know, what's at the heart of annual giving, what's at the heart of stewardship. Steve says, and I think he's exactly right, that stewardship ultimately is about moments and times in our lives of conversion. And it has taken me as a former CPA and a, <laughs> as a church treasurer and as a cost accountant and all kinds of, you know, like uh, every aspect of accounting that I could have done. It has taken me in my own person um, a lot of time to reflect on um, kind of moving away from putting money at the center of conversations around annual giving and to a certain extent around um, stewardship in general to say, wait a minute, step back think about those moments in in my own life where I've had those significant conversions and like A, to wonder about those, but then also to say, oh, how have those moments of conversion been moments when I have been drawn much more deeply into my own personhood and into my own ministry? And to then turn around and say, ah, that's what stewardship starts to look like. It's, started, it's a way of saying there are gifts that are planted deep within each one of us. And when we discover what those gifts are, with each other and then have those gifts start to come out and in us and really in many ways be made manifest that's what stewardship is um, it's taken me some time to come to that yeah. understanding and I'm wondering about what that's like for for others as well so and so what does it mean to be canon for all of that so what does it mean to be canon for all of that well so the way that so I have a couple things to say about that so the way that Steve thinks about his um, leadership his senior leadership team is that basically the canons um, and then now um, Jim Pinnell who has started today actually Tuesday yeah yes exactly that um, that that group comprises Steve's senior leadership team on the staff and alongside the vestry so kind of we work it's kind of this shared governance I guess approach those are my words not his so um, but my words from higher education um, so to be the canon who is um, representing and giving voice for these two ministries, spiritual growth, faith formation, and then um, stewardship means that when Steve gets together his senior leadership team, which is now complete, is it you know as he envisions it right now, um, those are two of the groups or two of the ideas, two of the areas of ministry that I will represent. But it also means. Um, to be part of a senior leadership team that helps envision what the future next 5, 10, 15 years of this cathedral is like for the good of this cathedral and for the good of the diocese and to ultimately be faithful to where the Spirit is calling this place. So um, to be able to be a part of those conversations um, and to wonder and to do that hard, um, graceful, um, gracious work of listening on behalf of the cathedral community, oh, it's just this amazing honor. Um, we have our first gathering together uh, next week, and it will be the first time I will have been to a canons meeting. Like, I've never been to a canons meeting. <laughs> so, and Steve's not going to call it that, but when I first started, right. that's exactly what it was. And so I didn't go to those as the curate. Of course, I, yeah. You know, I went to, I, you know, so, so I'll know more next week about kind of what that looks like. But I think, in, you know, in general, it's about being a part of that, that senior team mm -hmm. of people who really helps set the vision um, and that I think also what we're hearing from the community in terms of what the you know what the vision is for this place and what the hopes are and also what the challenges are like I think we also have to be honest with ourselves 
and honest with the community where we see those challenges and figure out how we name them and what we do about them. Just exactly like what you guys do with the vestry. I feel like in many ways it's it's a kind of a parallel set of tasks and work alongside what the vestry does on behalf of this community. There are two senior leadership groups here. so. And as you said, part of the responsibility for the respective senior groups is forging what the next 5 or 10, yeah. 15 years will look like in a community of this size, in a community that is as active as it is, mm-hmm. uh, to have that long-term vision to say, we're not going to be here forever, but we have to make sure that we create a space where whoever does come here in 10 years can take our work and mm-hmm. then keep moving keep it forward. Keep it forward, that's right. That's a big responsibility. I mean, yeah. clergy or no, canon or no, mm-hmm. it's something everybody here is called to do. Mm-hmm. As you said, stewardship, but right. not simply money. Right. Um, so then the other part that I will say, because a lot of people have asked, okay, so what's, what is a canon? So the way that I understand canons are uh, is as follows. So there are two different people within a diocese who can make canonical appointments. One is the bishop, mm-hmm. and the bishop makes appointments for particular ministries or for particular people to serve in particular ways, um, and those people are called canons because of the appointment by the bishop to serve in these particular roles. The dean of a cathedral also does that exact thing, and so Steve will appoint particular people for particular roles while they are serving at the cathedral. And so um, Steve's approach, I think, and we'll have to talk to him about this, but my sense is that for his um, associate rectors, for his clergy, who are not not curates, but who are here, you know, indefinitely, that they all end up serving uh, as canons, and so that basically says to the community and also to Steve and to others outside of this community, the dean has appointed a person for a particular role while they are here. So it's a way of formalizing a relationship Mm -hmm. um, and saying there's a particular responsibility, including being a part of the senior leadership team. So Steve says, um, and, and thinks about it this way, so associate rectors are canons, the canon for um, music, for um, so Michael is a canon, and then I think that that's it at this point. But Steve, at any point in his tenure as dean here, can make those canonical appointments, mm-hmm. and so it's basically just a fancy way of saying an appointment, a particular appointment by Steve for a particular role. So just like it is for the dean, or for the for the bishop. Um, so Pat is also a canon, and mm-hmm. I think Pat's canonical appointment came from the bishop because of her long-standing time and her work in the diocese and so she is the other canon but appointed into that role by Bishop Greg so yeah I'm thinking you told a story earlier about how you were in your teens I think and somebody asked you if you had uh, considered a call to ministry and how insane the thought seemed at the time and now here you are part of the senior leadership team off a cathedral (laughs) That's not a straight line. No. <laughs> and if you had asked me if I thought that were possible when I was 16, I would have said, are you crazy? In some ways, I guess nobody at that age can no, see this coming. I know. And even, I think, in my, my late 30s, when I was starting to hear those early... Right. Yeah, 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 the second call, time. I still, I, yeah, I don't know that I would have said that that was possible even then. And it wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago. <laughs> Although 10 years is a long time. <laughs> so... Well, that leads me to a question I love to ask everybody, which is, 
in general, how their St. Mark's experience has changed them or how, they've, oh. how they're different now compared to the time they first walked in. Yeah. And given your roles as curate and as canon, how has that changed you? How are you different now here in September 2019 to when you first walked in? Oh, gosh. Um, in some ways, I feel like I am this vastly different person having um, lived and served in ministry in this place for the last two years. And at the same time, I also feel like that core part of my being is unchanged. Mm -hmm. And so I think another way of saying that is... I'm actually thinking about kind of the image of a flower. It's like you have this rose, that, you know, you see the bud of the rose, and it's, you know, it's like, oh, that's going to be really pretty. What's that going to look like? I feel like that my time at St. Mark's has been that rose opening up just a little bit, or maybe a lot, so that some of the petals that have always been there are finally able to start to, you know, be revealed um, in, in, in all kinds of ways. Um, and I, I use that image as a way of saying also it's like, oh, this is what I imagined it would be. And it's also so much more. It's like I thought about my time starting at St. Mark's as, you know, these are the things that I think I'm going to do. Or here's what I think ministry is going to be about. And it has been all of those things and so much deeper and richer of an experience in a way that I just could never have imagined until I actually started doing and practicing and praying and being with the people of St. Mark's and, and living deeply into this role as a mm. clergy person. So it's in some ways, I don't know, I think about often the, the gospel story of you know Jesus saying, you know, I am the I I am the gate and it's this narrow gate. And and I think about that narrow gate, like in the past I thought about that, it's like that feels kind of exclusionary, but in some ways now I think about that narrow gate as we see the gate and we have some image of the gate and then we walk through the gate and then all of a sudden the world opens up in a way that we never imagined was possible. There's so much more to the world. There's so many more colors. There's so many more layers. There's so much more complexity. And through all of that, there's so much more beauty. And so you, you walk through the narrow gate, and the gate's narrow only because we have this very, very small vision. We can't know until we actually go through that gate just what incredible depth there is and beauty to that depth. And so that's what I feel like in many ways this last two years has been like. As I had some sense about it, but until I actually walked through and walked through day after day after day, I could not have known about the just everything that is involved and um, and the deep gratitude for being able to be a part of that and to actually be, you know, invited to actually walk through that gate and then to have the courage to walk through that gate and to say, oh, wow, it is a wonderful, amazing place. What do you remember of your first time at St. Mark's, your first impression walking through the doors? Well, so I'm going to ask a clarifying question. So are you? So I remember the very first time I came here when I was a layperson and, right. um, and, and acolyting, actually, at a confirmation. So I'll talk about that, and then I actually I'll talk about the first time I walked through the doors 
the first Sunday, I guess. So the very first time that I came here, it was just great to be able to serve in the space. So I had a friend who was being confirmed who now is in her early 80s, but she was not confirmed until she was in her, I guess she was probably in her mid-60s. Wow. And so, you know, half of Magnolia or half of Ascension came to the confirmation because that's the way Ascension goes. Like, you know, we, we that community loves to go together to support people in these major milestones. And so to be able to serve as an acolyte when she was confirmed was just great. And it was like, oh, there's a place. Like, it's not just cathedral people who are serving. That's that's interesting. And that's really cool that they'll let other people acolyte. And so it was kind of cool. And um, I was reminded during the acolyte training on Saturday something that I discovered when I acolyted that day, which is um, there are real, the, the, the torches actually are real candles and wax <laughs> spills on people. So the very first time I came here, I got wax in my hair oh. and on my face and it was like, oh. oh. Yeah, welcome to the cathedral. Exactly. That's right. So um, <laughs> baptism by wax. And so, um, so that's what I remember is being able to be in this space and to have so many other people um, from the cathedral, but then also from other churches who were here celebrating major milestones, mm. which was pretty cool. Um, so the first Sunday that I served as a priest, so I preached on that Sunday. It's still <laughs> actually kind of a blur <laughs> that first Sunday. Um, and it was Labor Day weekend, and I was so excited and also incredibly terrified. It was like, oh my gosh, this space is so huge, and I don't know what's going on with many people, so I have no idea how this sermon is going to land, and um, and that was a little um, uh, concerning to me. And at the same time, there was just this sense of, uh, like when I got to start meeting people, of, oh, you're here, we're excited to hear to hear your story and to, to meet you and to get to know all about you. So this, this sense of hospitality, really, right. in this place. Um, and I think the other thing that, um, that surprised me and that I will remember for a long time is that the construction was well underway at that oh. point. So when I was ordained, the windows on one side were out. And then the first Sunday that I started, I think the windows were out on the other side. And it was like, you just, it was just business as normal. It was church as normal. It was just like, you know, the, we, we love the building, but the building is not necessarily completely critical to the experience right. of God being worshipped. And so... I actually kind of like the fact that the that the the building itself was in the middle of that construction project, and um, and I loved the way that the community was willing to be flexible around that. That said something to me. People were, you know, they might have been annoyed about it, but they didn't sound that way. I think they were just curious and grateful, right. and so I remember that. So, and so now it's great that we have a building that <laughs> and windows. And windows, exactly. That's right. And there are no birds flying around. So, <laughs> so um, yeah. The other thing I will say, the last thing I will say about that is, um, and I actually do miss this. I would walk more than I do now. Those first couple of months when I was at the cathedral, and when I would walk, and the windows were out, and Michael was practicing. I loved you could hear him. hearing the organ music spilling out on Tenth Avenue. There wow. was something really, really powerful about that, and I thought, I hope people are listening, and I hope people are wondering, and I hope that that draws at least a few more people, who would not necessarily know what's going on in here to come check out the space yeah. but there was something really beautiful about that music just floating down the street in a way it's such a it's such a nice connection to how we started this conversation of for some reason you always had this dream about seattle you oh. always had the idea of moving here and when you were 
still fairly new in your time here, just walking up 10th Avenue and hearing the music come out through our gaping windows. There's something about that, and maybe that something is divine, how it kind of completes that circle, but then moves it forward as well. Christy Chapman, thank you so much for sharing all these, all these stories, all these things about your past and how they've led you to us here. We are so grateful for your presence and your work here. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Pereira. This has been a delight, as always. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our music was performed by Michael Kleinschmidt on the Flintrop organ at St. Mark's. Michael Pereira and Andrew Himes produced the podcast, and we hope you'll visit stmarks.org. So long.